Good afternoon. My name is Samantha Besson. I'm a professor of international law at the Collège de France in Paris and at the University of Fribourg in Switzerland. I'm delighted to be here today to give a lecture on a topic that's very dear to me, which is due diligence in international law. Literally, the term due diligence refers to the vigilance or care which is owed, requested, or expected. It stems from the Latin word disligentia, so it's composed of the prefix dis and the root legere, which literally means collect. So together, dis and legere refer to the quality of those who demonstrate choice or care, the carers. For the purpose of this lecture, due diligence may be defined as a standard or norm of conduct applicable to public institutions like states and which requires them to exercise care by adopting reasonable measures in order to protect the interests or rights of other subjects against harm caused by third parties situated under their control, provided states or public institutions had foreseen or ought to have first foreseen the risk of harm and had the capacity to intervene. The violation of due diligence, so defined, amounts to undue negligence. So now that I've defined due diligence, I'd like to say a little more about the standard. Due diligence is an ancient standard. It dates back to antiquity and, most notably, to Roman private law. Its reception in international law was prompted by analogies to Roman private law in the writings of the 17th and 18th centuries international lawyers. Due diligence first traces in positive international law date back to the late 19th century, where it was mentioned first in arbitral and then in judicial decisions. This occurred in international legal regimes relating at first to transboundary issues, such as the international law of neutrality, the international law on the protection of aliens, or international environmental law. Back then, the issue of due diligence generally arose in relation to the responsibility of the state towards other states and with respect to the conduct of private persons. Over time, however, the scope of due diligence has extended to include many other regimes of international law, including in cases without any transboundary dimension. This is the case, for instance, of international human rights law, criminal law, humanitarian law, law of the sea, or investment law. Its personal scope, too, has expanded. Today, due diligence also applies to public institutions other than states, such as international organizations, which I will refer to as IOs. It also benefits individuals or non-state actors. It also sometimes applies independently from the acts of private persons, notably to protect against harms caused by other states, IOs, or natural disasters. Nowadays, then, Due diligence is a well-established standard in international law. This has been confirmed by more than a century of international courts case law. 
Due diligence is even also required by recent international treaties and various international law codification projects. Not to mention, of course, its multiple references in soft law. Now, despite its pervasiveness in contemporary international law, the concept of due diligence remains largely indeterminate. For instance, regarding the nature of due diligence, we've come to use this term to refer interchangeably and totally loosely to a principle, a standard, a norm, or even an obligation of conduct. The sources of due diligence also raise numerous interrogations. Beyond its inclusion in treaty provisions and special international legal regime, it's unclear whether due diligence is also a general principle or maybe even a customary principle. Finally, if its source lies in custom or general principles of international law, one may wonder whether the regime of due diligence should not also be that of a standard or even an obligation of so-called general international law. So against this background of indeterminacy surrounding due diligence in international law, and despite its success, today's lecture provides a critical and systematic analysis of the practice. My aim is to identify and specify for you the minimal general normative regime of due diligence. The regime I'll be presenting has been distilled from a comparison of the practice of due diligence in several special regimes of international law, and especially the study of international courts case law. Of course, the caveat issued by the International Court of Justice in the genocide case should be kept in mind. In that judgment, you may remember, the court refused to establish what it called a general jurisprudence relative to due diligence obligations of prevention, or even to identify a general obligation to do so. However, and ironically maybe, the court also admitted resorting to, I quote, the rules of law whose scope extends beyond the specific field, end of quote, at issue in the case. And in the 2022 DRC versus Uganda reparations case, the ICJ actually seems to want to pursue this line of argument. To that extent, and like today's lecture, the ICJ's case law participates in the development of the general minimal regime of due diligence in international law. This lecture will unpack this minimal regime of due diligence in eight steps which will be the eight sections of the lecture. First, its nature. Second, its justification. Third, its sources and regimes. Fourth, its scope. Fifth, its condition. Seventh, its content. And variability. And eighth, its limits. So let me start with the nature of due diligence. And this will be my first section. The nature of due diligence remains vague in the contemporary practice of international law. It's interchangeably addressed, and I mentioned this before, as a standard of conduct which qualifies an obligation of conduct, or as an obligation of conduct in itself. 
The reference to an obligation of due diligence is actually a misnomer, or rather a linguistic shortcut. Indeed, due diligence is best understood as a norm or standard of conduct grafted upon an obligation which it qualifies as an obligation of due diligence. How else could one restrict the scope of such an obligation? Due diligence certainly cannot be understood as implying a general obligation not to harm anyone, anywhere, and any time. One should first be able to identify the rights and interests which are to be protected and whose identification by international law may then give rise to an obligation not to harm negligently. So, when one reads or hears the phrase obligation of due diligence in international law, one should understand an obligation to X with due diligence. Among the rights and interests identified by international law as having to be diligently protected through an obligation of due diligence, international courts have mentioned states' right to inter territorial integrity or states' rights to protect their nationals. More recently, the right to the preservation of marine fauna and flora, and more generally, of course, human rights, have joined that list. As a result, it is now possible to consider that a general duty not to harm by negligence exists in international human rights law and in international environmental law, next, of course, to the general rights of sovereignty of sovereign states. So that was my first point, the nature of due diligence. Let me now move to the second section, the justification of due diligence. According to the ICJ in another famous case, the Corfu Channel case, due diligence is constitutive of the sovereign equality of states. More precisely, obligations of due diligence should be considered as the normative counterpart or the corollary of the equality of sovereign rights of states, to quote Max Hubert in the Palmas Island sentence. So the justification of the standard of due diligence in this very old international case law seems to have two prongs, equality and sovereignty. The first prong, equality, refers to the equal autonomy of peoples, and by extension, the equal autonomy of their states. On the level of interpersonal morality, indeed, the obligation not to harm negligently the rights and interests of others is usually justified by reference to the respect for their equal autonomy. Similarly, the foundation of the interstate obligation not to harm by negligence resides in the respect for the equal rights of states. Given that peoples and their states are not alone in the world, but on the contrary, and to cite Anna Arendt, are building a world together, they should respect the rights of others with due diligence. The second prong of the justification of due diligence in the international case law is the link which may be established between diligence and control. To go back to interpersonal morality once more, 
and to quote the famous moral and legal philosopher Joseph Rawls, being unable to control what lies within one's domain of secure competence would be an incomplete form of being in the world. And what characterizes sovereign competence in international law is its collective and especially institutional dimension. The state's institutionalized nature and its very specific ability to have organs and dedicated resources come with a higher level of control and competence. And this higher level of control over potential sources of harm results in a higher degree of due diligence. So in sum, it is the individual's equality of control and in international law, the equality of state sovereignty which justify their due diligence. In our social circumstances, equal respect requires that we bear responsibility for the harm that we cause to others when we do not ensure reasonable control of what belongs to our own sphere of competence. And this is what accounts for the corollarity between the rights and competences of sovereign states and the due diligence obligations first identified in the Palmas Island case. So let me now move to my third point and the third section of this lecture, the sources and regimes of due diligence. The question of due diligence sources in international law is intimately related to the issue of its regime i.e. whether it is general or special international law. So this is why in this third section, I'll distinguish between first the sources of the due diligence standard in general international law, and second, the sources of due diligence obligations in the special regimes of international law. So let me start with the sources of the due diligence standard in general international law. International courts often refer to due diligence as a general principle. Now this reference preserves a certain ambivalence between due diligence being a general type of norm and its belonging therefore to the regime of general international law first, and its stemming from a general source of international law second. Let me explain. First then, Characterizing due diligence as a principle makes it possible to treat it qua type of norm as a general rule of international law. And this corresponds to the idea that there is a general regime of due diligence, i.e. a minimal regime of the due diligence standard common to all international legal regimes. International court's case law on due diligence has emphasized that qualification on several occasions, including in the Corfu Channel case, which I've mentioned before. But there's also a second way of understanding the reference to due diligence as a general principle. The second understanding is to understand the principle of due diligence qua source. And understanding it as a general principle qua source places due diligence among the general principles of law envisioned by Article 38 of the Statute of the ICJ and among the general principles of international law, stricto sensu. Such a qualification is clearly appropriate 
because ever since the end of the 19th century and through the middle of the 20th century, due diligence has originated both from international judicial practice, as I mentioned before, and from the national judicial practice of states. Thanks to this ambivalence of the qualification of due diligence as a general principle, so as a type of norm or as a source, international tribunals have preserved a certain ambiguity with regard to the customary nature of that principle. And they've done so, especially in the absence of all the validating conditions for the existence of a customary norm. In the Pope Mills case, for instance, the ICJ referred to the due diligence standard as a due diligence obligation. After requalifying due diligence as a customary obligation, the ICJ was able, in a second move, exemplified by the Costa Rica-Nicaragua case, to use this ambiguity to derive other obligations, which it considered to be customary as well, including the obligation of prevention in international environmental law. So it's easy to see how the ambivalence around the general principle of due diligence is used to draw further consequences in terms of its customary nature. Now, independently of its source in the general principles of law, or the general principles of international law stricto sensu, the due diligence standard, which qualifies a general obligation not to harm negligently, rights and interests protected by international law, may also find its sources in Castro international law. This has been confirmed by other international courts' case law since at least the end of the 19th century and may be grounded in the general and regular practice and opinion juris of states. So this was for the sources of due diligence standard in general international law. Let me now move to the sources of due diligence obligations in the special regimes of international law. The existence under international law of a general standard of due diligence, as I've just been explaining, does not imply the generality of all obligations of X with due diligence. Quite the opposite. As explained earlier, special obligations of X with due diligence require the specification of the protected rights and interest, namely the specification of a particular obligation not to harm with due diligence. And these specific obligations should be identified within each special regime. The sources of those different specific obligations of due diligence in each regime are varied. They range from general principles and custom to multilateral or bilateral treaties. The first treaty-based obligations of due diligence actually date back to the 1960s, but they have multiplied since the 1980s, especially in international environmental law. International court's case law has come on top and has validated and interpreted all these sources. And the continuous flow of international decisions, arbitral and judicial, on the matter of due diligence since the 19th century has actually even intensified since the turn of the millennium. This has especially been the case in international environmental law, which I've mentioned before, and in international human rights law. 
in addition to treat to customer principles, treaties, and case law. Due diligence was also recognized as early as the 1990s in various unilateral acts of IOs, IOs such as the UN or the European Union. But it, also, it has also been recognized more generally in soft law and numerous international law commission codification projects. It's the case in international environmental law, human rights law, and more recently, cybersecurity law. Now, several factors account for the important place of soft law in the due diligence context, besides, of course, the crisis of multilateral treaties. One of the reasons for this emergence of due diligence in soft law is the concurring emergence of potential new duty bearers, such as IOs, of course, but also multinational corporations. Their due diligence obligations cannot, indeed, always be specified by sources of international law that are mostly interstate, such as treaties, custom, or general principles. So while one may understand how due diligence and why due diligence is becoming so important in soft law, one may also regret this development. One of the difficulties raised by soft law in the context of due diligence, indeed, is the lack of rigor which characterizes its treatment of due diligence. And I'll give you three examples here. The due diligence of private persons, for instance, is often conflated in soft law with the due diligence of public institutions. For instance, the due diligence expected from corporations under corporate law is simply applied, copy-pasted, over to IOs. Or conversely, the due diligence applicable to state is merely transposed to multinational corporations. Second example of a difficulty raised by soft law in the context of due diligence, categories get very quickly distorted. And I'll give you here an example. Complicity as a ground of attribution of responsibility is regularly mixed up with responsibility for negligence. And finally, techno-scientific standards mingle with normative considerations in the specification of due diligence con content, and I'll come back to this later. So that was my third point, dedicated to the sources and regimes of due diligence in international law. The time has come to move to the fourth section, which is the scope of due diligence. Here I will distinguish between three scopes, the personal scope, the geographic scope, and the temporal scope of due diligence. So first, the personal scope of due diligence, and it will be my longer point in this section. The specificity of due diligence obligations in personal terms lie in the triangular personal structure. If you think of a relationship of due diligence, you are advised to think of it as a triangle, which has three angles. The specificity of those obligations, indeed, is first that they bind a legal subject. That's the first angle of a triangle, and I'll call this the duty bearers of due diligence. They bind this legal subject, this duty bearer of due diligence, to the benefit of another legal subject, 
which I will call the beneficiary of due diligence. And they bind that legal subject to the benefit of another legal subject, thirdly, in relation with a third source, the source of harm, which I will call the third parties of due diligence. So what I will do now is explore those three angles of the due diligence triangle. Let me start with the duty bearers of due diligence. The duty bearer of due diligence is the duty bearer of the obligation to X with due diligence. So depending on the type of obligation, there can be one or several duty bearers of due diligence. The duty bearers of due diligence obligations may be states, of course, as it has been the case in international law since the 17th century. However, given the egalitarian and control-based justification of due diligence I presented before, any organized and institutionalized political community could, per se, be the duty bearer of a due diligence obligation. And this explains how international organizations, such as the UN again, or the EU, are slowly recognized as duty bearers of obligations to X with due diligence under international law. But the next question is whether due diligence obligations under international law could also be extended to private persons, and especially to multinational corporations. Time precludes discussing those in detail in this lecture. But let me say that most of the time, the problem with the due diligence of multinational corporations is not the applicability of due diligence itself. It is the absence of obligations of those private persons under international law. The absence of obligations which the standard of due diligence could be engrafted upon. And this is particularly the case in international human rights law, where there are, as of yet, no human rights duties of multinational corporations. And this explains why it is mostly a corporate due diligence standard stemming from domestic private law, domestic corporate law, that is in use in the current soft law norms pertaining to business and human rights. Of course, one may and should not exclude the adoption of a binding instrument of public, or even better, private international law, on the matter in the future. But at the moment, the draft binding instrument discussed at the UN requires states to set up domestic private law obligations to bind multinational corporations that fall under their jurisdiction. As such, the binding instrument, the draft binding instrument, does not address international law obligations of due diligence other than those of the states themselves. Let me now move to the second angle of um, the triangular due diligence relationship the beneficiaries of due diligence. The beneficiary of due diligence refers to the person whose rights and interests are protected by the specific obligation to X with due diligence. Again, it may be one subject alone or several subjects together, especially if the obligation of due diligence is an ergaomnes obligation. The interests of the beneficiaries of due diligence may be protected by international law in the form of obligations, stricto sensu, and even as corresponding rights. 
However, it is particularly important to stress that it does not have to be the case. Not all due diligence beneficiaries under international law are right holders. Each special regime of international law determines whether or not the obligation of due diligence is so-called directed to a beneficiary who thereby becomes a right holder. It is the case, of course, of due diligence obligations under international human rights law, which are owed to a right holder, the human rights holder. But it's not necessarily the case under international humanitarian law or international environmental law, where obligations of due diligence are not owed to a person as a right holder in particular. The absence of a right of the beneficiary of a due diligence obligation toward the duty bearer confirms something particularly important to understand about due diligence. It confirms that the beneficiary's normative relation with the duty bearer is not and does not necessarily need to be a strong one. No wonder. The normative relationship that grounds a due diligence obligation, and remember what I said before about the justification of due diligence in equal control, the normative relationship that grounds a due diligence obligation is the relationship of the duty bearer to the third party at the origin of the risk of harm, which it has some control over. Since the 16th century, the beneficiaries of due diligence have been either other states or private persons, depending upon the evolution of the interests protected by international law. And there's been an evolution. At first, the private persons protected by international law were mostly foreigners, aliens, in accordance with the international law on the protection of aliens. Then, the personal scope of the beneficiaries of due diligence extended to include any person residing on the state's territory, including nationals. And finally, today, it, it encompasses any person in accordance with international human rights law. Today, one may even say that further subjects of international law, IOs, for instance, have been added to the list of beneficiaries of due diligence, provided their interests are protected under international law. So this brings me to the crux, the third angle in the due diligence triangular relationship. And this third angle is the third parties of due diligence. The duty bearer of due diligence obligations in international law is required, you may remember, to take a number of diligent measures to protect against the risk of harm caused to the beneficiary, not so much by its own conduct, but by a third party, the third angle in the relationship. The third party of due diligence may be any legal subject upon which the duty bearer exercises control. Not only can that third party be a private person, it can also be a state, another state, or an IO. It could even be natural phenomena or technical installations. But two remarks are in order with respect to the duty bearer's control over the third party at the origin of the risk of harm. The first remark relates to the type of control that is required and the second to its degree. 
First remark, it's essential not to confuse the control with which the duty bearer exercises over a third party with the diligence duty bearer's competence or jurisdiction to exercise that control under international law. As emphasized by international courts, and especially the ICJ, in the DRC versus Uganda case, this control may derive from any type of, and I quote, link between the duty bearer and that third party at the source of harm. It may correspond to the personal or territorial jurisdiction of a state over the third party at the origin of the harm, if that third party is a national of that state, or if it's acting from that state's territory. However, control can also exist independently from the third party's nationality. And it can exist independently from any type of territorial control over that party, as long as there is some link that gives the duty bearer some control. Second remark, control over the third party that is the source of the risk of harm can be very loose. It does not need to be effective control as required under international responsibility law for the purpose of attribution of a private person's conduct to the state. Indeed, in case of breach of a due diligence obligation, a state will be responsible for its own negligent conduct without any attribution of the conduct of the private person to the state. So in light of the above remarks, it's essential to distinguish this type of control over the third party, which is the source of the risk of harm, from yet another type of control and jurisdiction in international law. Jurisdiction in the sense of effective and regular control over a right holder under international human rights law. It's particularly important to stress this because those three types of control go by the name of control and jurisdiction under international law. So it's particularly important to be clear. So this third type of control that one meets in international human rights law is one of the conditions governing the emergence of human rights and their corresponding duties. However, unlike the control that grounds due diligence and which pertains to the third party at the source of the risk of harm, effective control in international human rights law must be exercised over the human right holder and therefore over the beneficiary of the due diligence obligation when that obligation corresponds to a human rights. Unlike a simple due diligence obligations which arises from the control relationship between the duty bearer and the third party source of the risk of harm, therefore, a due diligence obligation relating to a human right also rests upon an additional second normative relation of effective control of the duty bearer over the right holder who is also the beneficiary of due diligence. Now, the reason I stress this, besides you know, the sake of clarity, is because there is a growing confusion, and one that is sometimes intentionally entertained on this point in international human rights law. In appealing to due diligence, indeed, many authors and certain human rights bodies, like the Inter-American Court of Human Rights or the Human Rights Committee, seek to reduce the conditions of jurisdiction and effective control over human rights holders to mere control by the human rights duty bearer 
over the sources or risks of human rights restrictions and seek to replace, in this way, the former type of control by the latter. The problem is that due diligence as a standard cannot by itself ground the human rights obligation which, is, which it is meant to qualify. This simply puts the cart, due diligence, before the horse, the obligation of due diligence. So that was the personal scope of due diligence. Let me now, let me now move to its geographic scope. Due diligence does not have, per se, a particular geographic scope besides that of the obligations it is engrafted upon. As I've just explained, indeed, the duty bearer's control over the third party that causes the harm is of a personal nature. It can be any type of link. While that control may be territorial, on official territory or extraterritorially over foreign territory, a territorial dimension is not required for due diligence to arise. The source of harm may be located outside of the duty bearer state territory, as long as the latter exercises the necessary control over that source. Now, of course, historically due diligence obligations, as I said before, have been associated with state sovereignty and as such with states' territorial control and integrity. And this explains why, in the International Court's case law of the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the first conventional and customary obligations of due diligence were recognized in relation with the transboundary harm. Since the second half of the 20th century, however, due diligence progressively came to be applied to risks of purely internal harm, linked to the territory of a single state without an extraterritorial element. And this is particularly the case in international human rights law. So it was also gradually applied to risks of harm occurring in common spaces, spaces common to states outside of their respective territories, such as, of course, the international law of the sea or international environmental law. So that was the geographic scope of due diligence. Let me now move to the temporal scope of due diligence. Again, due diligence does not have a particularly temporal scape, scope sorry, besides that of the obligations it is engrafted upon. So depending on the temporal scope of the obligation, the temporal scope of due diligence will be affected. Now this being said, certain special regimes of international law do set a minimal threshold for the application of due diligence in the shape of so-called a real or immediate risk of harm. However, this is not always the case, and some regimes also include future and therefore non-immediate risks of harm within the scope of obligations of due diligence, provided that the risks are certain. For the rest, due diligence obligations being obligations of conduct, they are continuing obligations. They arise as soon as the risk of a reasonably foreseeable harm manifests and they endure over time because they bind the duty bearer until the risk disappears or until the harm occurs. The duty bearer should adopt the measures most suited to protect diligently the rights and interests at risk 
making due diligence obligations adapt and evolve over time. So that was my fourth point on the scope of due diligence, personal, geographic, and temporal. Let me now move to the, five, the fifth point, the fifth section of the lecture, the conditions of due diligence. For due diligence obligation to arise, in addition to the conditions of the obligation itself, a number of conditions specific to the due diligence standard should also be fulfilled. Two of these conditions are related to the circumstances or capacity of the duty bearer. They ensure that it is reasonable to expect diligence from the duty bearer following the principle ought implies can. If you can't, you don't owe. The first condition is knowledge of the risk of harm, or sometimes called in international human rights law, reasonable foreseeability. It's necessary to verify that the potential duty bearer of due diligence knows of the risk of harm against which it should protect the rights and interests to which the specific due diligence obligation is attached. Depending on the circumstances, knowledge of the risk of harm can be both actual, real, or constructive. It is necessary, indeed, to establish that the potential duty bearer either knew or should have known about the risk of harm. The second condition is the duty bearer's ability to make measures. This condition seeks to verify that the potential duty bearer is actually able to be diligent, to act diligently. This criterion is sometimes also referred in international human rights law as a reasonable ability. Talking of reasonable ability, the time has come to move to the sixth section of this lecture, the content of due diligence. The content of the due diligence standard strongly depends upon the content of the obligation upon which it is grafted. The due diligence standard, after all, merely qualifies that content by requiring the duty bearer to exercise reasonable care in performing its required conduct. So, in order to be able to isolate the specific content of the due diligence standard, it's necessary to distinguish between three things, and I'll do those three things in turn. Distinguish first between the types of obligations upon which the due diligence standard is engrafted. Second, the kind of care that should qualify the respect of these obligations. And third, between the test applicable to determine the degree of care one may reasonably expect of the duty bearer. So those three elements are the three elements you find in the expression obligation of due diligence. So let me start with the first one, obligations of X with due diligence. Most due diligence obligations are obligations of conduct. I've already mentioned that and they are opposed to obligations of result, which are obligations to guarantee a specific outcome. Obligations of diligent conduct may be obligations to prevent, to protect, or to remedy. Most of the time, obligations of X with due diligence are positive obligations, and they require an active conduct, enacting criminal law, signaling the presence of a bomb, conducting an environmental impact assessment, but they can also be negative obligations, such as obligations to refrain from harming, 
for instance, obligations to not, not to provide military assistance to an armed group or to hackers. However, while an obligation of X with due diligence can be either positive or negative, the due diligence standard itself is always positive. It is breached by an omission, negligence. Distinguishing, as I just did, between these different types of due diligence obligations, and especially between preventive and non-preventive obligations of due diligence, is crucial. While certain obligations of conduct cannot be conceived of without an integrated standard of due diligence, and this is the case of obligations of prevention in particular, the standard of due diligence can also be integrated into obligations of conduct that are not at all preventive. This is why due diligence complete identification with preventive obligations in the case law of, inter of, an, inter of an international environmental law has become particularly problematic. Indeed, while the generality of this characteristic is not beyond doubt, obligations of diligent prevention are mostly considered in the case law as breached only once the harm that they sought to prevent has occurred. Of course, the harm's occurrence as a necessary but insufficient condition does not necessarily mean that the obligation has been breached. For instance, if all reasonable preventive measures have been taken, as confirmed by the ICJ in the genocide case. But this conflation between preventive and non-preventive due diligence obligations in international environmental law, with respect to the role of harm in identifying a breach of the obligation, has led to all sorts of undesirable consequences in the case law. And this includes, for instance, an overemphasis on procedural obligations of due diligence at the price of material obligations of due diligence that are wrongly equated with obligations of results. So that was the first part, obligation of due diligence, obligation. Let me now move to the second part, which is the diligence part of, of obligation of due diligence. Due diligence in the conduct owed as an obligation. The due diligence standard requires the adoption of measures of diligence, also called vigilance or care, with regard to the rights or interests that these obligations protect. One of the specificities of due diligence obligations is that they are obligations to ensure or to use best efforts rather than to guarantee a certain result. Due diligence obligations do not therefore trigger strict or absolute responsibility for any harm caused to the protected rights and interests. They are not unlimited. Further, the diligence that is due matches the risk of harm that the duty bearer should prevent, protect against, or remedy. The international case law reveals indeed that diligence is mostly due only once a minimal threshold of harm is reached. A minimal level of risk of harm that needs to be real or immediate, as I mentioned before, but also a minimal level of gravity of harm that needs to be serious, important, or severe. Let me now move to the reasonable character of diligence. I've discussed the obligation of diligence, and now I'll explain the due. 
The due diligence standard is a standard of conduct requiring the duty bearer of the due diligence obligation to demonstrate the diligence which is due, requested, or more simply stated, reasonable. And the reasonability test is two-pronged. It includes a first test of impersonal reasonability and a second test of reasonability that is more tailored to the circumstances of the case. The present section is devoted to the first prong of the test. It requires identifying what a reasonable state should have done in the circumstances, and therefore the minimum that could be expected from the duty bearer. International courts have progressively developed from the practice of states a minimal institutional standard of so-called good government or well-organized state. That standard is dynamic and it has evolved over time. But it sets at any given moment a minimal general threshold of due diligence. It is both internal to the state and external when it applies to states' international cooperation. Of course, you'll tell me it's notoriously difficult to determine what is a reasonable man or reasonable woman in domestic law, particularly, of course, in the context of civil liability. And because of that difficulty, the reasonableness standard often becomes the object of a legalization process in national legal regimes. Such a legal legalization of the normative standard of the reasonable is a way to avoid judges' normative appreciation of what is reasonable. In international law, the notion of reasonable is even more difficult to apprehend because of its universal application and because of its application to a collective institutional subject like the state. So the same trend, albeit magnified this time, towards legalizing as much as possible the reasonability test is observable in international law. And this is what explains why states have tended to specify through international treaties what due diligence actually requires from them. It is one of the reasons that might explain the increased number of conventional guarantees of that standard since the 1980s. But the crisis of multilateral treaties has rendered that process of legalization of due diligence through treaties more difficult. This is why the legal specification of the content of due diligence has recently moved and continued through means of soft law. Now, regrettably, this trend towards legalization of the content of due diligence has had two main consequences. A high degree of technicization of due diligence and a high degree of proceduralization of due diligence in order to reduce the need for normative appreciation of what's reasonable. International tribunals are indeed less likely to be accused of activism when they ensure compliance by states with technical or scientific standards or with procedural checklists than if they were to evaluate what would have been reasonable for a state to do in those circumstances. And this is especially the case, sadly, in international environmental law, but also lately in international human rights law. This brings me to my seventh point and seventh section, the variability of due diligence. Beyond this minimal and impersonal 
threshold of reasonably required diligence, which I've just mentioned, the reasonability of due diligence still has to be personalized and contextualized. Indeed, due diligence is a variable standard of conduct. It is a best efforts standard. As mentioned before, it should be adjusted to the concrete abilities of its duty bearer following the principle ought implies can. And this has been beautifully confirmed, for instance, by uh, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea in its 2011 advisory opinion. Nothing unusual here. Any norm, even a universal one, should always be specified and contextualized in a given social setting before it can give rise to concrete obligations. This contextualization of the due diligence standard is even more essential in a world characterized, as we all know, by marked differences between states and peoples. Among the factors or so-called parameters, to quote the ICJ in the genocide case, of due diligence variability, the following six should be mentioned. The knowledge of the risk of harm, the capacity of the duty bearers to take measures, the degree of control over the source of harm, the degree of the risk of harm, the severity of the potential harm, and the vulnerability or special quality of the duty bearer. Now, scope precludes examining them in detail here. But note one important thing. The variable character of due diligence does not make it a purely subjective standard. I explained this before. Nor does it make it indeterminate. The personalized reasonability test requires reasoning anew every time to reach a just outcome. However, the judicial process this reasoning is taking place in enables and even guarantees a determinate conclusion. And this brings me to my eighth and final section, the limits of due diligence. Because due diligence is a variable standard which should be adjusted to the circumstances of each case, it cannot and should not place a disproportionate burden upon its duty bearer. We've discussed before the lower limits and the lowest threshold of due diligence, and it's time to discuss the upper limits of due diligence. The upper limits of due diligence are identified within each special regime of international law. One may mention material limitations or resources limitations, depending on the wealth of each state. Limits may also be legal, such as potential conflicts with concurring international law obligations. The international case law has long referred to proportionality as the best way to balance due diligence obligations on the one hand with conflicting normative considerations, including duties, on the other. This was confirmed, for instance, in the Alabama case, dating back to 1872. Yet, as was well known, there is nothing more fluctuant and more indeterminate than proportionality in international law. Moreover, one may object to the widespread understanding of proportionality as an instrumental rationality test. It's important, therefore, if we are to resort to proportionality in the context of due diligence, not to reduce proportionality reasoning about the limits of due diligence to a purely cost-benefit 
economic analysis, and risk minimization principle. I'm stressing this because this is a tendency one may observe in international environmental law, case law, and it is a tendency that one may regret. As I explained before, one of due diligence strengths is, is to bring the reasonability test back to the heart of international judicial reasoning. One should therefore strive to bring international judges to also use it when setting the maximum threshold of due diligence. Far from bringing a source of complete discretion for states and as such of indeterminacy of international law, the determination of what is reasonable in given circumstances actually guarantees adaptability to concrete situations. What it promises in short is something we need badly, which is more justice in international law. We've now reached the end of this lecture. Due to time constraints, I could not address the specificities of the due diligence standard in specific regimes of international law. I've mentioned some of them here and there, uh, but I couldn't do justice to the richness of the practice in those specific regimes. Nor was it possible to explore the international responsibility law aspects of the topic, which are absolutely fascinating. However, if you are interested, you may find a more complete account of due diligence in the course I gave on the topic at the Hague Academy of International Law in January 2020. The course was given in French and it's been published in French, but an English translation will actually be published uh, before the end of the year. So I thank you for your attention and wish you the best. Thank you.